What's great is when he finally arrives, we're in one world trying to link two basic films. We have to deal with episode three, but much more importantly, in a lot of ways, we have to make sure that everything that we're doing in three rings true for episode four. We have our sort of the, the two prongs of the art department, really. We have the, um, the Australian art department, which is the sort of, in a sense, the filmmaking side of the art department. And then we have the sort of conceptual side of the art department based at the ranch. Um, and we have a, a pretty ongoing relationship all the time. Obviously, the work's coming from George at the ranch directly through to us by video conferencing maybe two or three times a week. Everybody's taking the leap and focusing themselves on what little information we get each week, um, which happens to be enough for us right now. I mean, we're starting set construction weeks ago. Uh, costumes have been pumping up. Creature shop is just set, being set up, and they'll start working on some of the creatures in the next two weeks. So everything is moving. We're heading for a destination that we're not sure where we're going to end up, but it's a, it's a good and it's exciting time right now. Yeah, they're already building sets. God help me. I'm going to have to start this script pretty soon. Episode number 191 of Blast Points. This is Jason. This is Gabe. The art of revenge of the Sith. We've been meaning to do this episode for 25 years. Well, what's funny is I kind of feel like we've been doing so much Phantom Menace because it's Phantom Menace year. I kind of feel like we're cheating on Phantom Menace doing anything with a different prequel right now. It's kind of true, <laughs> but it's we've said this before of people where we're like, if you look at our almost now 200 episodes that we've done, what's the one movie we've talked about the least? And people are like, I don't, I don't Empire? I don't know. And it's like, <laughs> we've done almost no episodes about Revenge of the Sith. Phantom Menace is away on a business trip, so Revenge of the Sith is coming over tonight. <laughs> and we're going to look at the art book together. We're ordering pizza. Maybe we're going to make root beer floats. It could get crazy. I don't know. As exciting as all this Revenge of the Sith talk is, it's still October. And you know what that means. It's an Oktoberfest. So if this is your first time tuning in, what we're doing for the entire month of October, we're celebrating the one and only Snoke. He only has one name. He's like... He's like Cher or Sade. He's kind of like like Prince. He's like the Prince of the Star Wars universe. He just traded in his, his purple for gold. <laughs> Prince was the purple one. Snoke's the gold one. The old gold. <laughs> Do you think Snoke liked rolled gold pretzels? Yeah, I'm sure that's all he ate. <laughs> that's why he was so thin. Yeah. So salty. Ah. Oh, yeah, how come we did there's not enough product tie-ins with Snoke. There was so little. I don't think there was any because I had some like shredded cabbage that had Praetorian guards on the package. <laughs> but there was no, I don't think there was anything with Snoke on it that was food. Should have been. I can't, he's very appetite. This should have been raisins, prunes, like yogurt covered raisins. Perfect. With a little Snoke face printed on them. Oh, I'd still be eating them. Well, okay. So here's the deal with Snoketoberfest. If it's your first time tuning in. Every single week, we are picking a classic Snoke word that Snoke said in one of the movies where we're celebrating during Snoketoberfest. So I wonder, what could the Snoke word of the week be this week? Hmm. 
It's Oktoberfest. Cameos on the phone. They said, word up. Maybe Snoktoberfest lasts forever. I don't know. Well, it only lasts a month. I don't I don't really want Snoktoberfest to ever end. There's always next year. How will the Rise of Skywalker make us see Snoke and Snoktoberfest differently? Maybe next year will be uh, Snoke year. And every month will be Snoketoberfest. Maybe we just won't talk about anything else and in any episode ever, but just Snoke. It'll be just Snoke points. Maybe the the, the new Skywalker, we find out the, the OG Skywalker is Snoke. And he shows back up to kill Palpatine and Kylo and Rey. He kills everybody. <laughs> and, then, and then the music plays and the credits roll. Snoketoberfest. <laughs> The Jedi must unite. Oh, I have a bad feeling about this. To fight the ultimate battle. Crush them! Against the evil Sith Lord. And his new apprentice, Darth Vader. Oh, no. Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Rated PG-13. All right, so the art of... Revenge of the Sith, written by J.W. Rinsler, friend of the show. I wonder how his cat is every single day. <laughs> J.W. Rinsler, continuing the, like we say with every time we do one of the, the Art of Book episodes, the continuing the long tradition, one of the longest traditions there are with Star Wars, the Art of Books, besides T-shirts and actual movies, the Art of Books, the one constant we've always had. Going all the way back to the the art of the original Star Wars by Carol Teitelman. Weirdly, the art of Revenge of the Sith is the only art of book written by J.W. Rinsler, which is kind of shocking. Because I, I think like we look to his essential making of original trilogy books as such invaluable resources. And it's kind of like, yeah, he he did the art of Sith. That's his only one. It's true, but it's interesting because this one is kind of half art of book and half making of book. In addition to the making of book that he wrote as well that came out around the same time, they're kind of, they go hand in hand. They're the the Ray and Kylo of art and making of books. <laughs> the yin and yang of the making of Revenge of the Sith, yeah. Two sides of the single protagonist. Between both, if you have both of them, you have the balance of the books. <laughs> J.W. Rinsler making of Revenge of the Sith book, not the art book. That that making of Sith book is amazing. And one day we will do a whole episode dedicated just to that book because it is real special. But I had forgotten, like really forgotten, how amazing the art of book and how different it is than the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones book, where it it is very chronological telling the story through the concept art of how Revenge of the Sith was made with dates and notes about the script development. Well, if anything, it almost seems like it kind of set the template that the sequel trilogy has had, because if anything, the Force Awakens art of book is very similar as far as going back to, in addition to showing concepts and things early on in the development of the movie, also having some kind of behind the scenes interviews and, and information to go along with the artwork. That continued in uh, Phil Shostak's Last Jedi book, too, which both are absolutely essential and cannot wait for the Rise of Skywalker art of book. I try not to even think about that much. Yeah, don't say that out loud. (laughs) But yeah, Revenge of the Sith, its art book really kind of stands apart from the other two prequel trilogy art books which makes sense because the the look of the film i mean that's a thing like when i was looking through the art of sith again it really brings home how kind of different that movie does look than the other two yeah well almost it feels like and it's it's neat because it kind of carries over with the concept art because phantom menace was very much the old way of making movies even though they brought in a lot of digital Technology. It was shot on film. A lot of the concept work was pencil or ain't just ink drawings. And then with clones kind of figuring out what they can do with digital as far as 
creating concept art and as well as filming the movie that by Sith, it was kind of like how Return of the Jedi was just like they took everything they learned in the first two movies and now they kind of knew what they were doing and they kind of did what they wanted instead of necessarily having to figure out how to do stuff. And it definitely, it, it has, I know I always think of all the prequels, but yeah, I think Sith has it the most of like 80s Trapper Keeper art. <laughs> if you are old enough to know what that is, but it was like, it's very just over the top artwork that had like bright neon colors and things. And it would be like artwork you'd get on folders or things you would take, you would buy it back to school. And Sith kind of has that look where everything is just. I guess it was a hyper real, but it's almost like American graffiti, but in space where the colors, everything is just very saturated and intense. But then also more than the other two prequels, it also has moments of THX 138, I would say, too, where that movie is like black, white and gray are the colors of THX 1138. And there are moments in Sith more than the other two that are. Much more monochromatic. Well, remember before, I want to say it was definitely after Clones and before we knew much at all about Sith. I want to say Rick McCollum, of course, was hyping it up and they were talking about how they were getting inspiration from Mark Rothko paintings. The movie's going to be totally inspired by (laughs) Mark Rothko, which when you look at the Mustafar stuff, it kind of really is where it's just this big swatch of red and a big swatch of black and like that's the look so in a way it's almost like how last jedi had a very the whole movie was black red and white and kind of had a consistent color scheme through the whole movie sis still kind of jumped around but it was always kind of ultimately leading to the to the end of the movie which was just that red and black lava look so if you take an art class the first thing you'll do is get into graphics And you start learning, well, a jagged line means this, and a blue color means this, a red color means that. So if you're trying to convince somebody that what you want to do is excite them, then you use red or yellow. If you're doing it with music, then you use a fast rhythm, not a slow rhythm. But somehow we've gotten to the point where the words have gotten way up here, and these other forms of communications, which all started out equal, and at the beginning, much more equal before we had words, somehow in the educational system now need to be balanced out so the kids could communicate using all of the forms of communication, not just put it into little categories and say, you really need to learn how to use a verb. But if you really want to just learn how to communicate and what is the basic grammar of communicating, then that should be taught basically in the communications class. And it shouldn't be taught as some esoteric, arty thing. It should be taught as a very practical tool that you use to sell and influence people and to get your point across and to communicate to other people. Well, and Phantom Menace, even during the production, I mean, Phantom Menace had a long, like, wild blue sky, anything goes. Like we said, the only thing you recognize in Phantom Menace that's uniquely Star Wars are lightsabers and Attack of the Clones. You had the original trilogy starting to sneak in. We had clone troopers, the the basic shapes of the Empire kind of coming in. And you had things like Jango Fett. But Sith was the one that had to really bridge what we had seen in the prequels of that very separated, very far out design. And link that right up to something that would make sense going into... A New Hope to episode four, where we still have a a huge time period, but it still has to be like, okay, I can see where this is going. I can see the empire here. I can see the beginnings of the Rebel Alliance and some of the ships. And it's almost like something fascinating thinking about the design, the unique design and that challenge with Revenge of the Sith. It's almost like the war we see on screen is almost like a war between the old ways of the old Republic and the design philosophy or style of episodes one and two versus in the more original trilogy style design. Like we're seeing the star war on screen, but there's also like the concept artists were kind of dueling with a clash of those two styles. Well, that's a neat way to put it too. Even in the film, like the fact that 
by the end of the movie, the Empire has won, and the Empire, the designs that look like the Empire and look like the original trilogy have won, and it's kind of like, yeah, this just very different, ornate, elaborate look of Phantom Menace has been just utterly destroyed and has now been replaced by the Star Wars that we're used to, and design-wise and everything, yeah, it's just all about this, that whole aesthetic of the Empire and the original trilogy just completely obliterating the prequel look. Yeah, because then when you think about it, like really, what what you see so much of, and especially in A New Hope, you barely you only see the Rebel Alliance in, in Yavin, and that's just kind of like <laughs> a dark gymnasium with some X wings parked in it. Right. You don't really start to see things into like Echo Base and Empire and stuff, but really, all you see of kind of the the world besides Tatooine is like the Death Star. It's just like it's the Empire. That's what we see. And I don't, in my opinion, I think Sith does a great job with getting you to that, that place where it would make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, and that whole idea of it being the end and death and dying carries through the art direction through the whole film where there's a lot of sunsets, there's a lot of red, there's a lot of nighttime. It's like it's there through the whole movie. <laughs> And it is almost, it's neat how it is just visually. You can tell it's like, it's the end of the the day for the prequels. And by A New Hope, you know, the original trilogy is born. Something interesting Sith had to do was Sith had to address some major points of the original trilogy that now we just take for granted. They're just part of Star Wars. But Sith introduced a lot of things to us where... It was the first time, unless you count the holiday special, that we saw Kashyyyk, that we really saw other Wookiees besides Chewbacca. Uh, We saw Alderaan. We saw the creation of Darth Vader and the Anakin versus Obi-Wan fight. I can't remember. I think it was, was it in the New Hope novelization where they first mentioned that Anakin fell into a pit of lava, (laughs) you know, where it was always just part of the lore. Yeah, it was just something you knew. You don't know where you heard it or who told you or why it was, but that's just, that's how it happened. And you knew like all during episode one and two that that, this was leading to that. You had to see how Darth Vader was created and why Darth Vader, why Anakin became Darth Vader. What happened on the lava thing? And once we knew Wookiees were going to be in it, we're like, oh my God, we're going to see Kashyyyk. What is that going to be like? And well, we got to see Alderaan too. And there was all... It's like that was the exciting thing about Sith and the exciting thing about the unknown of the design of that movie was just like all these things that a lot of people have thought about and talked about forever. But we're going to see these things. But then what's extra crazy is we're seeing these things and just those things probably would have been enough, but that wasn't enough for George. (laughs) There's like five movies worth of new stuff crammed into there in addition to that stuff that we've been waiting forever to see. The first goal of the art department, right, was like design, what, seven planets or something like that? Work began on episode three in April 2002, one month before the release of Attack of the Clones. And in Rinzer's book, basically the first art department meeting for Revenge of the Sith is Lucas walks in. There were seven planets because like the whole idea is that the opening of the movie is going to be Clone Wars battles happening on seven different planets. Which is a really, really, really cool idea. And if you think about up to that point, just between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, was there even seven planets between those two movies? It's almost like they needed to design almost as many planets as we'd seen in the previous five movies (laughs) just for this opening scene. And they were all supposed to be visually completely different, so you could easily tell them apart. Yeah, they came up with... Uh, a ring planet, uh, a blue cliffs planet, a crystal planet, a bridge planet, an iceberg planet, a sinkhole planet, and a reef planet. Lucas's direction, there's a great quote in the book where he says, now is the time to go way out there, be as wild as possible. Which, it sounds like J.J. read this book recently because he said almost the same thing at Celebration, didn't he? Or just after, or just afterwards? Revenge of the Sith was the end of the saga, the end of the story. 
<laughs> we've we've been through all this before. We thought this was going to when Revenge of the Sith came out, we thought it was going to be the last one. And now it's like I was just saying with with those those things that Revenge of the Sith when you're going into it, it's like, "Oh, this movie, you got to see Darth Vader and you got to see this and got to see that." Going into Rise of Skywalker, nobody knows what the heck we're getting. <laughs> all we know is maybe Palpatine's in it and it's supposed to be the end. One thing they had with when they were designing like these uh, seven planets was they already had a core team in place from the other two prequels. They had uh, Gavin Bouquet, I think is how you say his name, the production designer, uh, Trisha Bigger from our costumes, a fan of Menace. She was involved. She was still around. Uh, Leading the art department this time was Ian McKaig, because I think Doug Chang... I don't think he was involved in Sith at all. I think wasn't he was off like doing his uh, Robotica book. If there's anything of his still in the book, it was probably left over from clones. But I want to say that I don't remember seeing any Doug Chang stuff in the book. And you had the dream team of Ryan Church and Eric Timons, who were new to Attack of the Clones. They were still around. And you had a ton of new artists coming in for Sith. Yeah, there was definitely a time towards the middle to end of production where it sounds like they just needed more concepts. <laughs> they threw more people on, which I mean, that happens as you start to run out of time and you realize how many things haven't been designed. Cause there's the somewhere in here, there's a good, the great quote from Rick McCollum about how with movies like this, you have to design everything. You can't go to the costume shop and just say, I need some costumes for a star Wars movie, or I need some props that, Everything from doorknobs to lights to spaceships needs to be designed by somebody. And they were the whole design department was working along for like a whole year without any script whatsoever of just Lucas showing up on Fridays and just kind of like, okay, uh, could be Utapau now. It seems like they didn't have a finished script and sets were still were starting to be built in Australia. <laughs> It's why if you watch some of like the, the like the the featurettes and stuff that came out on StarWars.com back in the day. Hello. There you go. A first draft. Official first draft. Of course, there's a lot of cheating in there. A lot of they fight. <laughs> but what's neat, going back to look at this and then comparing it to Force Awakens and the art of Force Awakens is they are very similar where. Because the beginning couple chapters of Art of Force Awakens is this same almost style of development because Lucas was still involved and they had the art department just kind of coming up with ideas as maybe he was working on the outlines. And then they were and then as they brought in writers, they had already had the art department working on this stuff. So it's kind of like over the course of the prequels, this was kind of just the way they made these movies. And let the the concept part really was a key part of the visual design as well as just coming up with story ideas and and things that would be incorporated. It's kind of fun to read in the book how many times the the artists talk about how they tried really hard to almost trick Lucas into taking some of their favorite ideas and getting them into the script. <laughs> and a lot of the concepts kind of evolved into not just being a picture of something, but they were a picture of a scene of something that could happen in the film that would be cool, almost telling their own little stories. And there's a great quote in the book, too, where I, th I think it's McCallum who notes that it's interesting that Lucas was still writing on pencil and paper while on Revenge of the Sith, a lot of the artists now were doing so much more digital work, which was something that started to come up you saw a lot in Attack of the Clones, especially the Geonosis battle. But Sith, the digital art creation, was really often flying, which is wild. I mean, this is 2005. And yet the paintings going on were like 2003, 2004. There's a great quote from Lucas in the book, too, about that kind of thing. He had said that around this time with all the digital art going on, that he said that photography had become painting and painting had become digital. And that digital art is a hybrid of both painting and photography. It is kind of weird to think back because it doesn't seem like that long ago that, you know, 20, 2005 and this movie came out, that that really was kind of the beginning of the real hardcore digital 
concept art and the fact that then the movies with digital effects and digital color timing and things could start to actually make the film match the concept art exactly. Like I think I brought this up before, like I always feel like when um, Peter Jackson's King Kong came out, like there were so many concepts they showed before the movie came out that when you saw the movie, it was like you were watching the concept art come to life and Revenge of the Sith, another 2005 movie had the very same kind of feel where it looked like concept art kind of come to life. And you compare some of these concepts with the shots in the film and like the colors and the framing and everything. It's, it's almost exact. Revenge of the Sith was shot completely digital and it was kind of like the, the technological milestones that Lucas wanted to reach with the prequels finally were being embraced with Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, because after that, basically any big blockbuster effects movie kind of followed that template all the way to today. Like that's that's how you make a Marvel movie. That's how you make a DC movie. That's how you make a big sci-fi action movie. It's just it's just the way you do it now. Um, the prequel's been a lot easier because primarily I don't have to answer to anybody, and my you know my entire life isn't on the line like it was in the first three. So this time it's, you know, whatever happens, it's going to be okay. That takes a lot of pressure off right there. Uh, and then, you know, over the years I've learned how to do this. Uh, Phantom Menace was an interesting jump in, in learning a whole new technology and a whole new way of approaching things. And that was kind of exciting. And uh, But it was challenging at the same time. I was going, you know, places nobody would ever gone before. And it was a little bit, and I was betting on it with my own money. You know, there was no guarantee it was going to work. I mean, it could have very easily been more American Graffiti or, you know, countless other sequels that didn't quite make it, you know, after the first three. And sure. said, Ooh. and I was taking a lot of risks, and I knew I was taking risks. And I knew if I made the central character an eight- or nine-year-old boy, that there would be a whole group of people to just check out. So, no way I'm going to watch that. So I was doing a lot of things that I shouldn't have been doing. I mean, if I was just to make a hit movie. And so I didn't know whether it was going to actually work. So that had a certain amount of pressure on me um, because I wasn't convinced and um, now I know how to use the new technology I know how to make movies this way uh, I'm very facile with it the crew is very facile with it. we've done three movies together so things move right along and there's no guesswork there's not a lot of big question marks that we used to have about what's going to ha- how are we going to end up doing this you know that, it's just a lot easier you know in the end So let's start getting into let's start getting down and dirty with the book. What, what in the chronological way that Rinsler mapped out this book? What was one of the first things that stood out to you? The first one is before you even get into the book. There's a little painting during the uh, George Lucas introduction. No, actually, I think it's the Rinsler introduction where there's just them fighting a monster on Mustafar, the Mustafar monster. There was nothing like that in the movie, but you know, seeing Jedi's fight monsters is always cool. But really, I think right off bat where we're getting into these first concepts of the seven planets just from just single images how well they did a job of making these different planets feel distinct from each other this early on that like the upside down buildings on the bridge planet just the really rich blue green water of the reef planet which kind of looks like maybe there was a little inspiration for scarif there and starting to see the sinkhole planet which you know what they painted that in geez was that from like two late 2002 2003 and almost exactly ended up that way in in the finished film when so much of these seven planets and a lot of the separatist droid stuff so much of that came back in the clone wars where clone wars borrowed quite heavily from unused revenge of the sith art like as it should have like if Lucas was planning on starting the movie at some time, showing us seven battles on seven planets of the Clone Wars, and then eventually just honed into one space battle over Coruscant, well, it's almost like work was going on and for the Clone Wars show back in 2003, 2004, and there's so much for them to choose from to use. I think actually one more neat one early on, too, on page 20 is the concept of the buzz droid, because that's from... Another one from, I think, June 2002, they didn't even know there was, it wasn't in the script. They didn't even know how they were going to use it. It was just this 
drawing and then it ultimately ended up being used in the beginning of the film being one of the cooler parts at the beginning of the movie buzz joints (laughs) was something we'd never seen before and when you see it in the movie it's like oh yeah that kind of makes sense they'd have droids would have something like that so then you know right away his movie's gonna be bonkers but it's kind of proof that this this weird way of working works of just you know you make something cool and everyone's like this is cool and we'll figure out how to fit it in the story later and it it just works pages 22 and 23 are one two punch of solid gold on on 23 there's a lot going on where lucas wanted a big lizard i want somebody riding a big lizard and there's a quote in the book too which is so awesome where his concept of he's got to have a big lizard in the star wars movie and someone writing it because he was inspired by a Star Wars trading card drawn by Al Williamson, which takes us right back to the newspaper strips episode from over the summer, where Al Williamson drew. I can like I can I can see the card like the art in my head of Big Lizard and Star Wars, and so you've got concepts of Anakin riding this giant dinosaur. Which eventually got turned into Obi-Wan riding the boga. Well, it's neat, too, because it's it's another where you can see the inspiration of just the look of Revenge of the Sith. Like, Revenge of the Sith kind of is a live-action Star Wars comic book. You know, it looks like those newspaper strips with Jedis riding lizards and stormtroopers in the jungle talking to Wookiees. Well, and like we said in the beginning of the episode, too, it was... Lucas's direction to the art department was now was the time to go wild, but also because of the leaps in technology in episodes one and two, the sky was the limit with what was possible here. There was no George Lucas putting down the storyboards and this is real, 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 not so real, real. And, you know, John Knoll and the guy, the other guy sweating. It didn't even matter anymore. Like, you want Anakin riding a lizard? Okay, we can figure that out. There's no sweat left. (laughs) You're sweating dry. This dust comes out of you. you. You've been doing this for six years at this point. But you can't forget with twenty page 22 and 23, the other superstar is the first painting of the lemur people. And the lemur people, potentially the most George Lucas thing in this book is, there's a quote from Sang Jun Lee about how in San Francisco on 19th Street, there was a zoo exhibition flag that had two lemurs on it, which George saw. He called Faye David right away and said, I saw a poster with a lemur. It'd be a good idea to build a character up from there. So then then you have this beautiful painting of this lemur shaman. And I remember the first time looking through this book, seeing the lemur people and kind of freaking out a little bit. And then immediately forgetting about them until a couple years later when Clone Wars was like, hey, we're bringing the lemur people back. And then remembering them. No, when I binged the Clone Wars on Netflix, I was just like, oh, the lemur people. Finally, there you are. But do you think, do you think like every day there was a Lucas call? Like, I was at Wendy's and I saw some trash in the corner. It'd be a good idea to build a character from that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, or maybe it was just the, the magic of lemurs. What I wouldn't give to be sitting in the backseat of the car. Well, Lucas is driving in San Francisco and just his eye catching a poster with a lemur on it. Oh, look at that. That's a real beautiful little guy right there. <laughs> so in October, uh, Ian McKegg joins the art department and he starts doing lots of character concepts where we're figuring out what uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin and Padme are going to look like. Was well, that where there's the great quote about Anakin's hair? Yes. Where McKay says how George wanted Anakin to look more like Qui-Gon to show that he was going beyond what Obi-Wan was teaching him, hence the long hair. So in the Star Wars universe, the longer your hair, the more, I guess, into the force you are. Did somebody say my name? <laughs> Skywalkers and hair. It's you know, it's just something that goes hand in hand. And it's it's kind of been forgotten in the the Chronicles of Star Wars fandom. But early in production of Revenge of the Sith, do you remember this on hyperspace? I can't remember if it was like the webcam or something, but we just got a tiny glimpse of like, hey, everybody, here's what Hayden Christensen looks like in, in episode three. And Star Wars fandom collectively like jumped out windows and did the splits. 
and smash bottles over their head because we saw Anakin's hair in Sith for the first time. Do you remember that moment? Yes. Wasn't that the picture where we saw the scar for the first time too? Yes. We're like, oh my God, he's got a scar and his hair like is straight up like 1970s hair. It was... I I remember it vividly. <laughs> I didn't get much work done that day. Because right on the other side of the picture of Anakin with hair, there's an amazing picture of bald Anakin with flames behind him. Yeah. Yes. So th- thankfully, that was like out the window, which is amazing, too, because then wasn't it in the art of Last Jedi? We had a picture of bald Kylo Ren. Yes. Yeah. They always got to try the bald just to remind everyone that it doesn't work. I like, too, there's another uh, quote where uh, they say after seeing McKaig's painting of scarred Anakin, Lucas, which is the one you're talking about, Lucas comments that Anakin will have to be more attractive for the duration of the film because Padme's still in love with him. Well, there's an amazing picture of Padme on the same page by Ian McKaig where it really kind of looks like Ray a little bit, too. She's got like the... Like the bun and the back of the hair, the hair is down. It kind of looks like Last Jedi Ray. Like, yeah, well, it's it's the Qui Gon hair on Padme, which means she's strong in the Force, which has been carried over to Ray with the Qui Gon hair in Last Jedi. And there's a great quote here from Ian McKay where about the for the Padme picture, and it says she's in love with a monster. So I wanted to make her courageous and strong like a lioness. George really liked the big hair, but I'd just given Anakin the long hair, so they couldn't both have it. But, you know, Ray, you're a monster. You have that look in your eyes from the forest. And you called me a monster. You are a monster. Yes, I am. They learned the lesson that it's okay for them both to have the big hair for the sequel trilogy. That rule is out the window of the last duel in Rise of Skywalker is them just measuring each other's hair to see whose who's is the thickest and the longest and the shiniest. I'm so nervous. It's not grease, it's sweat. Hawks likes it very hot in the First Order ships. I keep turning down the air, but he keeps turning it back up. Since we're so close, I got to mention on the next page, 46, we first learn about uh, newcomer Derek Thompson, who comes in to do uh, keyframes, they're calling him, which are just like pivotal moments from a proposed sequence. And in the book, a lot of his little keyframes are very small. And I think previous times looking through this book, I've kind of been distracted by the big, bright, colorful things. But as you go through the book, if you look at these little keyframes he did, this guy is a superstar because just on this page on 47, one of the keyframes he did, uh, which is called Zero One, which I'm wondering if it's the first one he did, has Kiati Mundi leading clone troopers and hammerhead soldiers. And Kiati Mundi is doing the full on Last Jedi Luke in the yoga pose floating in the air. So there's that. Then underneath it is Anakin with his team of rogue riders all riding lizards. Later on in the book, he has an action scene with uh, bearded snake man Opal Rancisis fighting a bunch of stuff. It's like him and some Shakti and another Jedi fighting droids. Oh, and Kit Fisto's dead, which is horrible to see. And then <laughs> there's another one where it's three Padawan ki- or four Padawan kids fighting droids and the Padawan kids are doing like uh, Chinese acrobat stuff where there's like one Padawan kid crouched and then in his shoulder are two Padawan kids holding each other's hands and a fourth one is standing on their shoulders. So they're like trying to be this giant acrobatic thing and they're all fighting droids at the same time. I don't know. This stuff is amazing. I don't know what happened to that guy, but he's a star. Well, it looks looks like he he worked on John Carter and it if, if I had to guess, it looks like now he's working for Pixar. Oh, good. Good for him. Man, they could make a whole movie just out of every one of these little keyframe sketches he did. By the time we get to October, Mustafar is coming along nicely. Uh, we Now the film's opening instead of the Seven Planets is opening with the big space battle. And we're honing in on the rescue of the Chancellor. So Lucas is still working on the screenplay. As we get into... The mid-60s, 
pages of the book. There's something in a Star Wars art of book that we see for the very first time in any of the Star Wars art books. Do you know what I'm talking about, Gabe? No. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. On page 65, there's finally concept art of a Nemodian. Okay, yes, you're right. And I actually, I wrote in my notes, there's still no Nemodians because, yeah, there's a couple of little ones, you're right. And I think there's one later on with like a gas mask thing on. Someday, the all Nemodian art book's going to come out and it's, they're just going to ship it to my house. <laughs> So a huge part of the middle of the book, though, is dedicated to the breakout superstar new character of episode three. The new sidekick, because according to Lucas, in each of these movies, the emperor needs a new sidekick. The sidekick for this one, yeah, the wonderful, spectacular General Grievous. And if you've listened to our Matrix commentary, you know I think about General Grievous a lot. (laughs) But basically, we ended up with a proto-Darth Vader a cyborg. And I don't know if you remember when the first like spoilers came out and there were rumors that there was going to be a new villain and he was going to have white armor. And I completely flipped out. I think I called you in like the, in the middle of the night or something. And I was like, the new villain's supposed to have white armor. What's it going to be? And I swear that was at least a month or more before the web thing came out. And we finally got to see the new, what do they call him? The icon of evil general Grievous. All of these films have the ultimate bad guy, which is the Emperor. But in addition to that, there's the sidekick, be him Darth Vader in episodes 4, 5, and 6, Darth Maul in episode 1, or Count Dooku in episode 2. So we're always trying to work with a sidekick, an apprentice to the Dark Lord. But what's other cool thing with Grievous, too, is it's just a really good example of how much things can change and do change that if you compare the original concept that was approved to the final grievous visually there was a lot of changes made and then even as they get into the rough cuts and animatics the character changed as the movie went on from being more menacing and aggressive to being more of what a uh, lucas called him a dracula droid where he was more conniving and would send other droids to do his dirty work unless he had to. And some of that changed even after the, the Gendy Clone Wars came out where the last episode had the really kind of ruthless, brutal Grievous that ultimately wasn't the Grievous we saw in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it's a, it's a good testament to how constantly in flux these movies are. Cause yeah, that was a crazy thing with the Gendy Clone Wars when that came out. It's like, Oh my God. What is Grievous going to be like in the movie? And then when the movie did come out and he's like, <laughs> a time to abandon ship. And he's coughing and stuff. It's kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> he's practically twirling his monocle in that one scene where he's in the escape pod. But some of this Grievous concept stuff is insane. There's like the little, the, the little baby, little child in a floating chair with two IG droids. There's like... Darth Vader mixed with Davy Jones situation thing going on. There's demonoid things and there's like just floating robots and stuff. Just wild, wild concepts. You can definitely see that when Lucas said we got to get we got to get crazy. Everybody was just totally just trying anything and everything they could think of. Well, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff in the book, too, of. Things they're playing around with, like there's a Mustafar illustration where there's like a giant droid like King Ghidorah on Mustafar with all the people that live on Mustafar like worshipping it. There's like five or six different parts where Anakin and Obi-Wan are fighting a giant worm for some reason. Like this was an idea they kept going back to like, like they're going to fight a giant worm. Well, then there's like what happened to the other Jedi. There's Kiati Mundi with an eye patch. Plo Koon with like Wolverine lightsaber claws, which I think though both of those ended up as toys, which is cool. On page 85, there's a drawing of Anakin with a red lightsaber that 100% is Kylo Ren, like Last Jedi Kylo Ren. Even with the black hair and everything in the shape of the face. Yeah, there's actually there's two. There's a little tiny one without the cape, too, that like the hair and the head looks like Kylo Ren. 
the opposite of that page too is a really cool, just real rough drawing from McCaig with Anakin and Padme, where Padme's in the light and Anakin's in the darkness and he's reaching out to the light, but he's reaching out with his robot hand to touch her pregnant belly. Love that stuff. Well, on the same page too, there's an Eric Timon's illustration that was kind of gaining traction online like a couple of years ago. It's Anakin and Padme on Mustafar. And the quote by Ian McKegg is, the moment Padme realizes Anakin can't be saved, she should do the thing that she needs to do out of love. She should kill him. Yes. So at one point were they playing around with the idea of Padme tries to kill Anakin? I think so. Well, there's a there's the quote on the other page where I was brainstorming with Ian, Tymon says, and he thought Padme might have a dagger in her hand. George responded favorably and said, I'm starting to see some scenes. So, yeah, maybe the, the early versions of those scenes of them talking on Mustafar was her trying to stab him. Well, then another road not taken way off on page 90 when we start getting into the stuff with Kashyyyk. There's the famous Ian McKegg illustration of young Han Solo. The quote is, it's not in the script anymore, but we were told that Han Solo was on Kashyyyk and he was being raised by Chewbacca. He's such a persnickety guy later on. He always has to have the best of everything. So I thought it'd be great when he was a kid. He was an absolute slob. And we got this little drawing of young Han Solo. That was one of the pages when this book came out that was kind of, you had to wipe Wipe the brains off the ceiling a little bit because your head might have exploded a little bit. Yeah, one thing we missed, I think that's it really kind of drew my attention going back and rereading this. Back on 63, there's a tiny little thumbnail of McKeg of uh, Padme bent over in pain and Yoda trying to comfort her. Just McKeg's ideas for that about how she has more midichlorians than any person ever had because she's pregnant with the Skywalker twins. Um, And that Lucas sounded like he was enthusiastic about that, but it never kind of made it into the movie. But it really kind of, in a way, I think makes you, if you think about that, you can kind of makes you think about the end of the movie differently that, you know, the whole, did she die of a broken heart? Like maybe just giving birth to two super (laughs) powerful Jedi people kind of messes with you. And maybe that's one of the reasons that the Jedi didn't want other Jedi to have kids. Like maybe... Jedis have babies. It's just like people can't handle all that, all that force. Well, and speaking of the force, jumping ahead way over on page 95, there's the whole thing where after Obi-Wan would have fallen off the boga with the Order 66, he was the whole concept that while he was down there, he was going to fight like some kind of giant demon monster. And there's all these wild illustrations of sub some kind of monster of the beyond Obi-Wan had to fight. And the whole concept was after he fought this monster, he was going to see the ghost of Qui-Gon down there in the bottom of Utapau. And there's a painting by Eric Timons. It's called Sinkhole Grotto with Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. And Ian said, wouldn't it be great to see an apparition of Qui-Gon while Obi-Wan's down there in the cave, giving him guidance? The painting wasn't used in the story, though. Yeah, there was. There were a lot of nights laying in bed thinking about that little picture. <laughs> it's easy to miss on this page because you're distracted by the ghost of Qui-Gon, but the little maquette sculpture at the bottom where they were like, well, Kiati Mundi's probably going to be riding one of these dinosaur birds. So they threw little Kiati Mundi on there. How many times do we have to say that Star Wars is all about riding on birds? <laughs> How many times do we have to say? <laughs> right? It's right here in the book. <laughs> Come on, Rise of Skywalker. We need somebody to ride a bird. Yeah, as you go through the rest of the book, there's a ton of stuff. Obi-Wan versus Grievous. Our first looks at the fire ships putting out the fire. Essential stuff. (laughs) We start to get into Polis Massa and the Polis Massens and their creepy expressionless faces. There's a lot of concepts of Padme's funeral that are really, really cool. And just how much thought they were really putting into getting the lighting just right, just really getting the feel of what her funeral means. And there's a lot of stuff in there, too, as we start to get towards the end of the movie of the creation of Vader. 
makes sense because those two scenes, you know, the death of Padme and Padme's funeral and then the birth of Darth Vader and death of Anakin Skywalker. And that's one thing I always have appreciated more with Sith over time is once you step away from it and you step away, like I was saying in the beginning of the episode with the expectations for Star Wars fans going in of, well, it's got to have the fight and it's got to have Darth Vader. It's got to have this is like the subtlety of the ending with like we were saying sunsets and sunrises and death and birth and kind of what he's doing in the end of the movie there. It's, so good. And very different than anything we had seen in any of the prequels before. Well, and like how is it different than what we had seen in any of the prequels, the, the rest of the art book here. Then it goes into part two where Rinsler starts to talk about principal photography. And the book just goes insane where we've got pictures of hallways and of sets and of Trisha Bigger's costumes. There's a great page of... Nothing but like creature heads and a close-up of Nemodian. There's a page of nothing but floors on Mustafar, like of what all like the graded floors on Mustafar looked like. Just a close-up picture of like tiles on Mustafar. I really love all the little scale reference things where anything that they need to have scale, they just have like the little like there's the little evil Anakin. With the red lightsaber they use for scale on one of them. I think there's one where they have like one of the Obi-Wan and Padme or Anakin and Padme standing like little tiny versions of them for scale. And then finally, in the third part of the book, we have a bunch of digital art. And then even at the end, there's some model work with some really amazing close-ups of some of the Wookiee houses on Kashyyyk. And a really, really, really good look of the crazy Jedi versus Sith relief that was in Palpatine's office that I think is up on display at Galaxy's Edge now, I think, or so, or a recreation of it. Yeah, I remember that being another highlight of this book, of getting to see that up close and spend a few hours just staring at everything that happens on it. Yeah, they say George was very clear about making it dynamic and somewhat gory scene of Jedi and alien warriors fighting each other. Spend way too much time thinking about that, that Palpatine liked it so much that he had it in his secret room in the back where he can talk about his secret things and <laughs> just look at it. I forget how awesome this book is. I don't know. It's, it's, a th it's the problem with all the art books. It's like, I feel like e the even... The Phil Sostak, the new ones, I'll take down, you know, the art of Last Jedi off the shelf for once in a while and be like, why aren't I looking at this every day? Well, there's just so much. It's hard. Your brain gets full and you just kind of get overloaded and you can't, you can't absorb it all. And then, but that's what's so great is you go back, like, I probably looked at this dozens of times when it came out and over the years and going back now, like, you know, I found a whole bunch of stuff. I just didn't even, it didn't even register was in there the last time I looked at it. They're like the gift that keeps on giving that you can always find something you hadn't seen and, and get excited and get inspired or that make you think something new about the story just by looking at what could have been in some of these concepts. Well, even looking at it with getting ready for this episode, it made me think about how Sith exists in its own realm, like we're saying, like in between the prequels and the original trilogy. And you see so much of the look of Sith and what was created in a lot of the, the, the art and the concept work in this book. You see so much of it, not only in Clone Wars, but in Rogue One. I think of the whole opening of Rogue One or how we see the turbo tank in Rogue One or so much of Corellia on Solo has that kind of dingy kind of look that Sith gets every once in a while. Well, in Canto Bite is very opera scene on Coruscant kind of inspired, maybe even more so than the Star Wars Cantina. Yeah, because this was kind of our first glimpse at the really the luxurious nightlife of Star Wars. So yeah, if you don't have J JW Rinsler's The Art of Revenge of the Sith, it's kind of like all the art books. They're still out there. They're not hard to find. I think there's paperback versions of all of them, especially the Art of Rent of the Sith that you can get fairly easily, I'm sure, if you hunt around. They're pro it's probably out of print, but 
it's out there. You can get them used all over the place. You can actually still get new new ones on Amazon. It's a fascinating look back at uh, what was at one time the end of the saga, the final chapter. It's the second last time there was a Star Wars movie, but it's the original end of the saga. And we're now getting our third last Star Wars movie, but second end of the saga. <laughs> you gotta love it. <laughs> Fortunately, I had the advantage of having gone to a lot of art department meetings, so I knew a fair amount of the art beforehand and knew what I was going to choose. Uh, The uh, art department supervisor keeps giant binders filled with the literally thousands of, of pieces of work of art. I was trying to organize them in chronological order, which meant instead of saying, oh, well, here's here's the space battle and here's all the pictures I did of the space battle, I wanted to show that in the beginning, that for the space battle, all they really knew was that there was going to be ship A and ship B. And that happened on week one. And then on week six, you had, oh yeah, there's, now there's going to be a hostage on this ship. And that's, you know, and then it really builds itself very slowly. So I really wanted to respect, once again, the organic process um, that George uses in, in making these movies. Twenty-eight years, Star Wars has captured our imaginations. Hello there. On May 19th, this is where the fun begins. Join the celebration of a lifetime. Do it. The final installment of the epic Star Wars saga. (laughs) Destroy the Sith. We must. Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, rated PG-13. The saga is complete May 19th. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. probably predict what we're going to say apple podcast reviews if you are listening on some sort of something apple when you're done listening if you go over there and write us a little review we will read it on an upcoming show and it helps the show in some weird mysterious apple podcast kind of way maybe the ghost of qui-gon and the bottom of an Utapau sinkhole can explain it to you i don't know and after you speak with qui-gon's ghost at the bottom of a sinkhole make sure to check us out on blastpointspodcast.com instagram twitter facebook and if you're on facebook sign up for the super chill group and on the website, we got the search function where if you're new to the show, you can search. You can find all of our previous Art Of episodes. You can hear, you can figure out what one other episode was that was mostly Revenge of the Sith based. <laughs> and we have the return of Darthfield comics. It's just like Palpatine, you thought. Darthfield fell down a reactor shaft and exploded, but he's just been biding his time. He's back. He had a contingency plan all along. It was all right in front of us, and we didn't see it, that Darthfield. <laughs> but, yeah, Darthfield comics are back on the website, so, yeah, you should go over and check that out. And if you like the show and you want to help us out, make sure you sign up for our Patreon and become a member of the Blast Points Army and get a few bonus episodes each month and help us out with making the show. This month in October, we already had... Uh, Star Wars Trivial Pursuit with Brandon from Talking Bay 94, which is a hilarious, super fun episode. And uh, I think it's safe to say sometime this month, a commentary for Revenge of the Sith. If you need more Revenge of the Sith. In November, Patreon's going to get crazy with Mandalorian stuff. So. Yeah, November's going to be nuts. We don't even know what what we're going to do, but we're going we're gonna to figure it out because, yeah, there's going to be Mandalorian every week, so it's going to be... Mandalorian madness, mad DeLorean-ness. Mandalorian mania. <laughs> well, on that note, that about wraps up our Art of Revenge of the Sith episode here. Love that book. 
Love the movie. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. As the producer, Rick McCallum, says in the book, he says most people wouldn't spend millions of dollars not knowing what kind of movie they are going to make. But George and, and his crew do exactly the opposite. Oh, that Qui-Gon ghost. I'm sorry. May the force be with all of you.